Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff, and we're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're so glad to have you listening to this podcast, and we hope that you will support the work that we do on this program by giving us a call today. The number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org. This podcast may be an important part of your routine, um, so think about the times uh whether you're on your commute or uh, on a run, all the times you listen to Where We Live and, and what that means to you. And if that's something you value, give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org donate. And thanks. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's nice to be back on air speaking to you after a week away. I spent some time with family in North Carolina where spring blooming is definitely ahead of our region by a few weeks. But coming home was a lovely surprise when I saw the number of flowering trees and bulbs. Today, we focus on the garden. What gardening questions do you have? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm happy to welcome back to our studio Charlie Nardozzi, who hosts the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio, Thursdays at 3.04 p.m. He's also a horticulturist and author. Charlie, welcome back. It's great to be here, Lucy. So what are you really excited about this year? Oh, I'm excited about spring, period. <laughs> it's been a long winter, and so it's nice to kind of see things uh, loosening up a little bit, the ground kind of opening up, the grass greening up. I know some people don't look forward to the grass greening up because that means you have to mow it, um, but also everything that's blooming. So this t- time of year is really just exciting, and the energy is kind of flowing, so it's it almost you can get overwhelmed very easily because there's so many things that are going through your head about, I've got to do this, i got to do that. But hopefully what we could talk about today is some of the things you should be doing now, some of the things you might want to wait a little bit on, and some of the things you could be planning for as the spring and summer approach. We've all heard the saying, <laughs> April flowers bring May, April showers bring, bring May, May flowers. flowers. And so we've been getting a lot of rain. Yes. Um, but that's a good thing for the garden. That's a good thing. And it, it's one of those things that you have to watch out for when you're walking around in your lawn, in your garden, because if you have that soppy soil, you know, you look around, you see standing water some places and in low areas and lawns or in gardens. You don't want to be walking on that. You don't want to be moving around uh, uh, vehicles or uh, tractors or lawnmowers on that because that's going to compress the soil down and compact it. And so whatever you try to grow there is not going to grow as well. So resist the temptation. If you have a clay soil or if you have wet areas, if you can hear it squishing as you're walking, it's not a good sign. (laughs) Some of our listeners like to have a green lawn. Others do not uh, because of the maintenance, but also just the idea of being able to grow lots of different things without worrying about putting down grass seed. But if you have a part of your yard, Charlie, that is more damp or pools water, what mm-hmm. about a rain garden? What, what are some other right. options? Yeah, there's definitely other options. If you have an area that is seasonally floods or seasonally is wet, every spring it seems to happen there, you might want to take advantage of what nature is offering you. And what that would mean is to dig it out, create a little uh, pool there. There could be a water garden area. It could be as simple as a rain garden. And there's some beautiful rain gardens out there. And for those who don't know what those are, is that uh, rain gardens are gardens that are depressions that you create intentionally in your yard to collect water. 
And the original idea is that we would run gutters off of our houses, and instead of having the rainwater in the summer running down into our sewer system, they would run back into this rain garden area. And that would allow it to sit there and then just eventually percolate into the soil. So there's plants that would do really well in there. So it looks like a regular garden. You can grow Siberian irises and a number of other kind of uh, wet tolerant plants. So it looks like a perennial garden, but it's serving in multiple functions. You mentioned a, a one type of plant. What are some others that would be good for a rain garden oh, rain here gardens? in Connecticut? Sure. A Eupatorium or a Joe Pie weed is another one. Bone said it's kind of related to that. Um, any of those kind of, of plants, uh, some of the cardinal flowers are nice. There's a great blue lobelia, and then there's a regular cardinal flower. There's a number of them, and I'm sure if you go online and just Google rain gardens, you'll come up with plant lists, and I'm sure there's some for Connecticut too, um, that would be, allow you to have a beautiful seasonal uh, garden that has color from spring till fall, but also is serving this other function is, is not only for collecting rainwater, but also creating a little bit of a habitat too. You get some frogs in there, maybe some peepers, who knows? <laughs> you mentioned uh, cardinal flower. The first time I saw this, I was just amazed at how vibrant the red flowers are. Yes. And that's a, a native plant? That's a native plant, and that's one of my uh, favorite ones. That's a lobelia uh, cardinalis, and it's something you often see popping up along stream sides, along pond edges. Um, I have a neighbor who has one, and every time I walk through there in the spring, it seems to have moved because <laughs> it does that. It self-sows, and it'll die off here but show up over there. But it's a beautiful flower, not just for us, but for the hummingbirds. They love the flower. You can join our conversation with Charlie Nardozzi, especially if you have a garden question. Often when Charlie comes on, uh, people will call in because there might be a problem area in your yard and you're not quite sure uh, what to plant there. Uh, now's your chance uh, to hear from Charlie Nardozzi. The number is 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So let's talk about uh, some of the plants, uh, you know, with uh, hybridization, the different shades that uh, people sure. get, especially with the cone flower. In the past, it was just that purple uh, flower, but now you can get so many varieties. Yes, you know, echinacea or the purple cone flower has gone through a whole transformation over the last, I'd say, 20 years. It started just as a prairie native that was a beautiful flower uh, to grow as a wildflower, often was in wildflower mixes. And then the hybridizers, the breeders, the plant breeders saw the uh, potential you might say. And so they started breeding it. And there is the purple coneflower, but there are some other species that are white and yellow. But they started crossing them and breeding them. And now you get all these different colors of the rainbow, except blue. Haven't come up with a blue one yet. <laughs> uh, of these coneflowers and different kind of cone shapes to them, too. Some of them don't even really look like coneflowers anymore. They look almost like a little chrysanthemum flower. So there's a lot of different variations out there. And it's nice to add the different kinds of colors and shapes to your garden. But you do have to be a little careful with that because when they start hybridizing a, a perennial flower, not just cone flowers, but uh, black-eyed Susan or Rudbeckia has seen this happen too in some of the bee bombs, they hybridize it so much that it's not as beneficial to pollinators. So if you're growing a garden for pollinators, for uh, honeybees, for butterflies, for hummingbirds, uh, for native insects, you might want to stick closer to the species. And it doesn't have to be just the purple coneflower that that's the only one you have. You can get some that we call nativars, which are native cultivars. And they're like one step removed uh, from the coneflower. So maybe it's a different color, but it still has that cone shape to them. If you start getting the real hybrids, like uh, the papayas or milkshake is one that I often see. Or which, Cheyenne. Uh, Cheyenne is a nice one, but that's actually more the native art. Oh, that, that's a good one. that's a beautiful Grow one. that one, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> but those other ones are nice, and they're ornamental. I don't mean to tell people not to grow them. They're beautiful to have. But if your intention is to grow plants that are good for pollinating insects, then you want to stick closer to the, the species. Because some of those other ones, I call them the, the poodles of the echinacea of the world, because they kind of look like little poodles. <laughs>
You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We mentioned uh, the importance of planting natives. Uh, We're getting a tweet from Brendan who wants to know the best way of disposing of annoying invasives like bittersweet when you're weeding so you don't have to be coming, that they don't just become annoying invasive somewhere else. Right. That's a good point. You know, sometimes you rip out an invasive like the oriental bittersweet and you you dump it into a a gully or somewhere around there and then it becomes an invasive problem there. Uh, so plants like that, uh, there's a couple different things you can do. You, if it's small enough, you can chop it up, throw it in a black plastic bag, and just leave the bag out there for a while to really kind of heat up in the summer and kill that plant completely. And once it's totally dead, then you can dispose of it. You can bury it. You can you know, chip it up, whatever you want to do. But making sure it's completely dead is really the most important thing. And that's true with, with poison ivy, with any kind of vines or any kind of invasive plants. That whole technique of putting them somewhere that they can't spread and they get um, actually killed because of the environment that they're in is probably the best way to handle them. Uh, This is the time of year when lots of bulbs are coming up. I actually tweeted out a photo of all of my uh, daffodils that I Uh got from White Flower Farm, of course. Very nice. Uh, But I was uh, curious, uh, with tulips, uh, I've heard and seen in uh, uh, plant catalogs uh, something called perennial tulips. Is that that really a thing? Because we hear that tulips can uh, fade after a few seasons. Well, if we had a couple hours, I'd tell you the history (laughs) of tulips, because it's fascinating. But really, tulips come from uh, the Middle East, from Turkey and places of that nature. And if you go over there, you'll see a tulip that looks kind of like a tulip, but not kind of like a tulip. We call it a species tulip. And this is a tulip that it is a perennial, comes back year after year. It's a smaller flowered tulip. It has the shape of a tulip, but it's really a fascinating plant. And we grow a lot of them at our home um, because they have interesting leaf shapes and interesting flower shapes to them. So they're, they're different than the cut flower tulips or the standard ones we'd see here. Those species tulips tend to be hardier. They tend to be tougher plants. They'll come back. They'll actually spread over time too. So if you're looking for a tulip that'll be something that more than a couple years and then it kind of fades away, that group of tulips is a nice one to look at. That might be a good answer from Kate, who says her tulips, which bloomed beautifully uh, previously, have dimmed this year, mm. and then sometimes they're blooming later and smaller. She wanted to know if there's soil amendments she can put in for next year. Yes. Yeah, so if you have those hybrid tulips, the parrot tulips and the lily-shaped uh, tulips, any of those hybridized tulips, it's nice after maybe two or three years to actually dig them up. So after they're done flowering and after the foliage starts to yellow, dig up the whole clump, separate them out. And what you'll often will find is that the mother tulip bulb will have little baby tulips around it, little bulblets, we call them. So you want to separate those off and replant the whole thing, the bulblets and the mother bulb, with some fertilizer, a bulb booster kind of fertilizer in the soil. And if you can do that uh, consistently every, say, three years or so, or or just as she was mentioning, when when they're flowering, the flowering gets decreased, the size gets decreased, that's indications that they need a rejuvenation. That will help bring them back so that they start flowering back to their past glory. Oh, tulips are tasty for rodents and other uh, creatures <laughs> yes, that, uh, in our yard. Uh, but what's a good strategy? Um, could you plant daffodils or allium around the tulips to keep yeah. uh, animals away from them? Yeah. So if you have like chipmunks and voles and mice going in there and munching on the tulip bulbs, that is one of the strategies you can use. You can mix up the bulb bed so that you have a bunch of daffodils, fritillaria is another one that's like that, alliums, uh, t- types of bulbs that the little rodents are not interested in. And then kind of towards the middle of it, that's where you put your tulips. Now, it's not 100%, of course, but it would be one of the strategies you can do. There are other things 
things you can try. You can go to the seashore and collect uh, shells and clam shells and, and oyster shells and things like that, crush them up, and put a whole bunch of those in with your tulips when you're planting them because these rodents are not going to like it. When they're tunneling, they're not going to like coming across those sharp edges. So that's another possibility. And if you're really into it, you can create a wire cage and plant your tulip bulbs in the wire cage, bury the cage in the ground, and then they won't get them at all. But, of course, that's a little extreme. <laughs> Charlie Nardozzi is here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Charlie hosts the Connecticut Garden Journal on WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio, Thursdays at 3.04. He's also a horticulturist and author, and he's here to answer your questions about the garden. You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff. We're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Where We Live podcast. Uh, we're taking a moment also to ask you to support the work that we do on this program to ensure that it is here for weeks and months and years to come. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure. All you have to do is go to the phones, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org. I think one of the tricky things about a, a live radio show is uh, we're, we are only in one time block, and that might not be a time you're able to listen. So that's the, the great part of the podcast. You can take Where We Live with you wherever you're going at whatever time. So if that's something that's important to you, something you rely on to learn about what's happening in your community and in the world, the number to call 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Spring inspires many of us to be outside. Are you planning to expand your flower beds or plant more trees in your backyard? Do you have questions about starting a vegetable garden? Charlie Nardozzi is here with me today to answer your questions. He's a horticulturist and author. And you can join us at 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Charlie, we got a tweet from Ryan. Uh, the mm -hmm. question, is running bamboo highly invasive and impossible to control or easy to control and non-invasive? I've heard both. Also, he wants to know or she wants to know, what is a good fast-growing plant up to 15 feet high to replace an arborvitae hedgerow? Oh, okay. So running bamboo. So to take a step backwards, there are two different kinds of bamboo out there. There are clumping types and then there are the running types. The clumping types are more well-behaved. They're a little tamer. They'll tend to stay in an area, whereas the running types of bamboo, as Ryan was mentioning, uh, is one that's going to spread all over the place. So some people would consider them invasive. The whole line between what's invasive and what's just something that spreads aggressively is, is kind of murky. So it's always hard to know uh, whether to call a plant invasive or not. Uh, but a running bamboo is something you do have to control. So the best way to control it is to plant it in the right place. First of all, put it somewhere where there are natural controls, whether it be the, the foundation of your house um, or some water or some other kind of natural area that's going to stop it from spreading too far. The other thing, of course, you could do is to do some kind of edging. But you have to be pretty much into this to do the edging because it has to go down about a foot or so deep to make sure that those uh, runners that are going out will not go underneath it and come back up again. 
A better idea would, to be, would be to stick with some of the clumping types. The Fargesii uh, is one of the types of bamboo out there that are uh, hardy bamboo. They're clumping types. They're a little tamer. And there are bamboo nurseries around the area, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, that you can actually go in a fun little road trip to go check them out. Can I put you on the spot and ask you how to spell that? <laughs> <laughs> F-A-R-G-E-S-I-A, I believe. Fargesia. Okay. Fargesia, Very yes. nice. Uh, and then uh, the oh, other question wanted... about... Um, so the arborvitae, but also the running bamboo. We talked about both. Yes, we okay. talked about the running bamboo. But the arborvitae, she wanted something, I assume, an evergreen like arborvitae yes. uh, or cedars. Something fast growing. Fast growing that will grow up um, really quickly and be an evergreen. Well, you know, the cedars are probably the best bet. Of course, deer like them, which is always a, a downside of trying to grow um, any of the cedars in, in our kind of climate here. You could try things like hemlock. Um, hemlock can be a tree, but you can also prune it to, into a hedge kind of shape. And that's something that the deer will not go after so much, um, but also is a pretty quick growing tree. Uh, Colleen's calling from New Britain. Colleen, what's your question? Sure. Hi. I have an ongoing problem with groundhogs in my backyard. They eat my flocks and everything. And I have a uh, have a heart trap, and and I try to move them uh, to different like different places, fields, and near the river and stuff. But they always seem to come back. Yes, uh, woodchucks have a good barometer about where they need to be, <laughs> exactly. And actually, the, the best thing, and this may sound a little cruel, but what is normally recommended for removing a pest like the woodchuck is to um, eliminate them, you know, you know, to take care of them. Because um, if you relocate them, even if you went miles away and relocated them into a farm field or somewhere where you think no one's around, there's going to be other woodchucks around. And they're going to be very disoriented. And often what researchers have found is that those relocated woodchucks do not do well at all and they eventually starve and, and die. Mm. So the most humane thing is actually to kill them um, once you have, have caught them. So I know that sounds very harsh and people don't like doing that kind of thing. The other thing is, of course, if you can create, if you see them kind of trying to move in, uh, you start seeing signs of them around, to do certain things that will kind of discourage them from being around. You know, I once took a whole bunch of kind of com like raw kind of compost that was smelly and threw it down their hole and that seemed to move them out <laughs> and tell them to go somewhere else. So you can try things like that. I've tried tennis balls soaked in ammonia, throw them down the holes and they don't like the smell of the ammonia and they try to push the, the tennis ball out but it rolls back in and that sometimes will work. So those are some of the things you can try to do to get rid of them. You can ask your gardening question uh, to Charlie Nardozzi here, who is the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on WMPR. Uh, the number to join us, 860-275-7266. Uh, I mentioned the Connecticut Garden Journal. Uh, one of your recent uh, ones focused on dwarf flowering trees. So uh, tell mm -hmm. us what you mean by that. So we think of uh, crab apples, dogwoods? Yeah, so the smaller uh, flowering trees, the crab apples, the dogwoods, the cherries that are blooming now all, all over, the weeping trees, um, those are some beautiful ones out there, the native trees even, like the amaranthia, the service berry, uh, which you can buy in many different shapes and forms. You can buy it as a single trunked tree or you can buy it as a multi-stemmed large shrub almost. And that's a beautiful one to have, not just for the, the flowers that have been actually are out right now, um, but also the berries that are kind of like blueberry type berries, great for the birds. And if you want to battle the birds, <laughs> you can get some too because they're edible for us too. Uh, can we give a shout out to, uh, I think, the Connecticut State Tree, the Mountain Laurel? What is that? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, how do you classify that? I, that's more of a large <laughs> shrub, <laughs> but it can be but grown into a tree. it's beautiful flowers. It's a beautiful flower, and I always enjoy coming down here because I, I grew up here mm -hmm. with all the different mountain laurels, and my uh, grandfather's farm had mountain laurels, uh, always an understory plant, and that's the, 
uh, one of the nice things about it, I was driving um, down from Goshen, where I was spending some time with my brother this last couple days, and I noticed some beautiful forests with some uh, big growth deciduous trees like oaks, for example, and maples, maples, and then underneath it, it was all the beautiful forest of mountain laurels, and that's what they like. They're a broadleaf evergreen. They like to have a, a filtered light coming through. They have beautiful flowers that will flower a little bit later. Um, but because they're a broadleaf evergreen, they're a nice uh, shrub to look at year-round. And the other uh, dwarf trees we mentioned, do they prefer full sun? Well, most trees like full sun, yes, for sure. The amelanchia, the one, the serviceberry, can do well on the forest edge with part sun. But uh, certainly anything in the crab, apple, pr- uh, plum, cherry family do, do best with full sun. You're going to ask a gardening question at 860-275-726 here on Where We Live today. Lauren from Meriden. Lauren, go ahead. Um, hi, I have uh, feral cats that won't stop going to the bathroom in my garden. I've tried the stuff you buy in the store, um, citrus, little bowls of vinegar, putting forks in the ground. I mean, I've literally tried anything that you could find on the Internet um, to stop it, well, and but, it just won't stop. Uh, yeah. with a good thing with feral cats, though, you probably don't have a lot of moles and voles around. But that's <laughs> no, it. None. There is, yeah, the upside of a feral cat. You can send them over to my place. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You can catch them and send them over to Lucy's. That's nice. So, uh, yes, there's a bunch of things. You go on the Internet, you see solutions for everything. Uh, so there are a bunch of different home remedies. Something that you might want to try is if you have rose bushes, which is the time, now is the time of year to prune your rose bushes, especially if you have some of the real thorny ones, the species roses. Take some of those cuttings and lay them over the beds where your feral cats are going to dig and, and do their business. Um, because they have that, those sharp uh, thorns on them, if you lay a nice layer over them, they're probably going to get discouraged and not want to go back to that. And then, of course, once things have started to grow up enough, uh, you can just remove them. It might be a little, you have to put your gloves on because you might get scratched. But That's, that's a good tip. Uh, yeah. So the, the thorns will keep the... The thorns will naturally kind of keep them away. There are products you can buy that kind of mimic that. That's like a mat you put down on the soil. But why mimic it if you can just do it naturally? Uh, Producer Lydia Brown says uh, a friend of hers had asked uh, if she could have some of her cat, used cat litter to keep pests away from the garden. Does that work? No, that's not a good idea. (laughs) Because used cat litter uh, will have potentially pathogens in it that you do not want to put into the garden. So that's another reason for not having the feral cats doing their business there because uh, there could potentially be some diseases that they introduce that if if you don't wash the vegetables or whatever, it's potential that it can affect humans too. Well, I'm glad we asked that question, but you can join us, 860-275. Seven five seven two six six. A Luis from New Haven. Luis, what's your question? Hi, thank you for taking my call. So my question is um, is on wildflowers and where is the best place to um, to buy uh, seeds for wildflowers and the best times um, throughout the uh, spring to plant them. Yes. So. Uh now is, would be a good time to plant a lot of the wildflowers, the trilliums, the trout lilies, and all of those. And you can buy plants online, too, as well as seeds. Now, if you're doing a big area, of course, you might want to try seeds um, or even collecting the seed pods of, of, of a friend. We have uh, the trilliums or the trout lilies or the, uh, the Dutchman's breeches. There's a whole bunch of the spring ephemerals, we call them, because they come up in the spring and then they're beautiful and they just kind of disappear in midsummer. Uh, so uh, as far as source for seeds, you can collect some of those uh, from neighbors or friends who might have the similar plants and then uh, spread them that way. There are a number of online companies that sell seeds and plants for wildflowers uh, that you can check out and go on. And of course, if you want to take a little road trip, one of the best places in the whole region would be uh, the Garden of the Woods up in um, Framingham, Mass. And you can go up there this time of year. They have seeds, they have plants, and they have demonstration gardens so you can see what the plants look like at different stages. So, um, And that's not too far away to drive. Uh, Karen's calling from Plainfield. Karen, go ahead. 
my question is, um, what do I do regarding moles in the yard? Yes, moles, you start seeing them pretty active this time of year because as it warms up, they're kind of looking around for something to eat. And the first thing you want to do is discriminate between what's a mole and what's a vole. So a vole is like a mouse, and usually the vole tunnels are what you see after the snow melts, and you see these tunnels right on the surface of the lawn going around, and that's usually the vole's activity. If you see tunnels that have little mounds of soil at the, at the entrance and the exit, that would be a mole. Um, the voles are herbivores, so they're going to be the ones that go eat your tulip bulbs and things like that, whereas the moles are carnivores, so they're eating earthworms and beetles and all kinds of little things that are in the soil. So technically, they're not really harmful to your plants, but they can harm things because of their tunnels. They create air spaces, and plants might dry out. The roots might dry out. So to get rid of them, it's really simple. You just buy castor oil. But not castor oil you get in the grocery store, but you want to get uh, some of the ones that you get in the garden center because that's not been deodorized. You spray that on the lawn area or the garden area. They don't like the smell. They'll get very active and agitated, and then a couple of days later they'll be gone into your neighbor's yard, and then you can give them the castor oil. <laughs> Good tip. Uh, Charlie Nardozzi is here on Where We Live to answer your gardening questions, 860-275-7266. We're going to fit another one right before we break. Uh, Susan from Burlington. Susan, go ahead. Oh, good morning. Um, we have had some real dieback on the uh, rhododendrons that the deer haven't eaten yet. Um, and the leaves are all brown. Uh, these, these plants are old. They're about 10 feet tall. And the leaves are totally brown. The buds are dead. One is, a, I think, is a Nova Zembla. Yes. And the other one, I think, is a Rosium elegans. Um, some other ones weren't touched, but these two are brown and ugly, and I want to know how much cutback should I do to these at this point. Uh, certainly the little green stems, the, the last year's growth is just withered. How far back do I cut without totally destroying my plant? Thank you, Susan. Yes, so uh, rhododendrons, fortunately, you can cut them back into the old wood, and that's the old gnarly wood that doesn't have any branches, any greenery to them. I would wait a little bit longer just to make sure you know where the live growth is and where the dead growth is, because what can happen to rhododendrons, especially during a, a hard winter, is that you'll get the leaves will, will brown and shrivel, and the buds will brown and shrivel, but the stems will still be alive. And then after maybe a week or two, you'll start seeing little buds forming along those stems. So I would wait a little while longer, since there's no rush, if you think it's actually really uh, died back a lot, and just see where the live growth is and then cut back to that live growth. If you find that uh, the live growth is really very little of it, you might cut back to the actual structure of the bush, like the old branches that are three, four, five years old. And you can do that with rhododendrons because you can cut them way back and they will re-leaf back out. It may not look great for a year or two because it'll just look like a skeleton of a plant, but within a couple of years, you'll see that it'll start shaping into a nice bush again. Uh, Sharon on Facebook wants to know how to remove a wisteria that was planted too close to a home. This is a plant that I saw all along um, oh, the yeah. south along the roads there. Is invasive? Uh, it can be. The Chinese wisteria in particular, that one can grow up. I remember down in the Philadelphia area once driving by and seeing one at the top of a telephone pole. <laughs> it actually grew all the way to the top and it was flowering all the way up. So it's, it's stunning when it's flowering, but it can get invasive and be very aggressive. If you want to move it, um, I would cut it way back. Even if it's an old vine, just cut it really far back, uh, dig it up. Now is a good time of year to do that. Try to get as much of the root system as possible. Move it to a better location where you have a strong structure that it can grow on and a place that gets full sun and a place where you can prune it well. If you're looking for a type of wisteria that's less aggressive, try the Kentucky wisteria. 
That's a different species. It grows up. It has beautiful flowers that are fragrant. Blue Moon is one. Amethyst Falls is another variety, uh, but it's not as aggressive. We've been focusing a lot on uh, flowering plants, but oftentimes people are thinking about uh, growing vegetable gardens. Yes. Uh, we heard uh, someone ask about uh, where to buy seed for wildflowers, but um, is it too late to start uh, seeds and seed trays for your vegetable gardens? Oh uh, no, not at all. Well, certain seeds. <laughs> I should cut, I should put a little asterisk next to that. Yeah, if you haven't started things like your leeks and your onions, for example, um, it, it's getting a little late. It'd be better to buy those as transplants. But even tomatoes, you know, I know we're getting towards the end of April here, but if you started them now and, and six weeks later, we'll be at Memorial Day, which is around the traditional time for planting them anyway. So you could do them still. Um, rush out to the garden center right now, <laughs> buy the seeds you need, uh, get them set up and get them in uh, a nice grow light system too, so that they don't get tall and leggy. And one little tip with your tomatoes, if you have started some already indoors, is to keep them stocky. And the way to do that is give them enough light and brush them twice a day, 10 times. Brush them like you're brushing your cat. And what that, that motion, what that does is it makes them stockier. It creates a thicker stem. John Ardozzi is here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue our conversation with him in just a couple of minutes. Here's the number to join us, 860-275-7266. But it's also WMPR's spring membership campaign. If you appreciate Where We Live and all the great programs here, here are two of my colleagues to tell you the number to call. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, spring means the birds are migrating back to Connecticut. On the next Where We Live, Connecticut State Ornithologist will be in studio. What do you want to know about the birds in your backyard? You can join us on Thursday. Also, you can meet us today. Uh, We've been hosting coffee breaks at local cafes around the state to hear from you about what issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs. You can join me and the Where We Live team from 1130 to 1 p.m. today at Give Coffee in Canton, Connecticut. We can't wait to meet you. Hope to see you there. Uh, in studio with me today is Charlie Nardozzi, horticulturist, author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs Thursdays on WNPR Connecticut Public Radio at 3.04 p.m. Uh, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, as we talk about gardening. Uh, we do have a couple of calls uh, waiting. So Bob from Windsor, uh, Bob, what's your question? Yeah, Charlie, 25 years ago, I planted a series of hemlocks for privacy, yep. and they're now 25 feet tall. And <laughs> How how much can I cut off the tops of them, and will they fill in th- uh, thicker if I do that? And um, uh, when what time of the year should I do that? Uh, well, the time of the year will be now. Um, unfortunately, with hemlock, if you cut them back too far, like back into the old wood, they will not regrow. So I would say, first of all, you're going to have to kind of accept the fact that they're 25 feet tall and you can't bring them down to 10 feet or 15 feet even. Um, because if you do that, if you really try to do a whole restructuring pruning, um, they're going to look pretty ratty for, for a long time. So I would try to, to maintain the height that you have. So pruning them now, you might want to even do it a second time uh, in a month or so. And uh, when you're pruning the tops of them to keep, keep the height where you want, uh, try to prune the inside of the top so that the outer edge is a little bit higher. That way you can go a little bit deeper into it and you won't see that cut because you'll see that higher edge on either side. Um, but hemlock is one of those evergreens that you can't cut way back and have it regrow. It's not like a, a yew, for example, you can do that too. Uh, Brian from Wallingford, what's your question? Yes, uh, we've got uh, some what we call chickweed taking over the, the lawn. It's like now about three or four inches high, and I haven't cut it yet. And last year we tried some kind of oat application on it, but it didn't seem to do anything. Is there any idea as to how you control this? 
Uh, well, if you have a weed like the chickweed that you're mentioning, um, I would try to, to kind of rake it out or remove as much as possible. And the key with weed control in lawns is to create a really thick, lush, healthy lawn. And the key to doing that is to grow the right kind of grass for your environment. So if you have a lot of sun, you want to get a grass mix that has a bunch of Kentucky bluegrass in it. If you have part shade or more of a shadier lawn, you want to get one that has a lot of fescue, F-E-S-C-U-E, <laughs> uh, grass. That's a, there's a short one and a tall fescue and chewing fescue, a bunch of different ones. But those will do better in those, those shadier areas and fill in. Also, you want to add compost. If you could do that as a yearly application, even just a little bit, just so you, have, you put a quarter or half of inch layer on the, the soil, that's going to help thicken the root systems of the grasses that you have so that they're going to grow thick and lush. The thicker the roots, the lusher the tops are going to be. Mow it higher, too, like three inches tall, not the two or two and a half that some people do, and that's going to shade out any of the weeds that come in. So once you get rid of the weeds, it's not so much just getting rid of them. You have to kind of do some steps to make sure they don't come back because weeds are very opportunistic. Uh, Christine uh, tweeted at us and writes, I have a flowering pumpkin plant that my daughter grew from a seed. It's now taking over the house. Uh, when can she plant it outside? And she also wants to know, when can you start growing watermelon, Charlie? Uh, okay. So, uh, well, that's great. You have a flowering pumpkin inside. So what you could do, which could be fun, because it is a little early to be planting pumpkins outside. You're going to probably have to wait at least another couple of weeks, is if you have a male flower and a female flower on your pumpkin, and the way you can tell is the male flower, if you look behind the flower, it's just a straight stem, whereas the female flower has a little pumpkin behind the flower. So if you have both of those flowers on the plant, then you and your daughter can play pollinator. You can get dressed up in your bee suits, <laughs> start humming, and come over with a cotton swab. And then in the morning when both flowers are open, you can squish the pollen from the male flower over to the female flower, and then you're going to pollinate a pumpkin. And then in a couple of weeks, move it all outside. You're going to have to protect it for a, at least a three or four days because it's not going to be used to the outside temperatures, the outside sunlight, the wind. So you might even want to cover it with a floating row cover or just protect it for a few days so it gets acclimated, and then you can just let it run. Oh, we were talking about the trees that are flowering this time of year. I have a couple of apple trees myself. Uh, Barbara is tweeting at us that her two apple trees are not producing, and she wants any hints from you, Charlie. One is about five years. The other is about three, and they're placed about eight feet apart. Okay, so they're a good distance apart. That's fine. Um, eight, uh, five years and three years are still young trees, but they should at least be flowering. So that's probably the first question I'd have back at her is that as long as they're flowering, then I wouldn't worry too much about it. They're young trees. They will get cross-pollinated. I assume they're different varieties, too, because you do need to have different varieties for the best pollination. If they're not even flowering at all, then I would question about how much sun they're getting, because any of the fruiting trees need full sun. That's six to eight hours of full sun a day. Um, and so if they're not getting enough sunlight, they're not going to be setting their flower buds. So those are some of the things you have to kind of think about. I wouldn't worry about fertilizing them as long as you're getting about a foot of new growth a year. And you can tell the new growth, you know, by the fall, just because of the color of the bark is a little bit different. If you're getting that kind of growth every year, you're fertilizing fine with whatever you're doing, whether it be compost or a commercial fertilizer. Um, just make sure all the other conditions are in place and they will eventually start fruiting for you. Uh, fruiting is a, a great thing, but then that also brings certain pests. So yes. what should you be doing with your apple tree? It's some natural uh, concoctions to keep these bugs from getting into your apples. Yes. So there are some things you could do right now, actually. You could have been doing it even a month ago. And that's spraying what we call a dormant oil spray or a horticultural oil spray. This is a mineral oil 
spray that you apply to the, the branches of your trees before they start leafing out or even as they're starting to leaf out. Even now, as trees are leafing out in warmer areas of the state, you can still use it. Um, just check the uh, recommendations and the label on it. It'll tell you which ones they might have some kind of phytotoxic uh, response on them. There's not that many, but there are a few plants that don't do well with the oil on the leaves themselves. But what happens when you spray that dormant oil spray is you're coating the branches with this uh, light oil spray that's covering over insect eggs, um, overwintering stages of the insects, disease spores, things of that nature. So you're reducing the amount of problems you might have. Once things start coming out, I always tell people, especially with apples, to get disease-resistant varieties. So varieties such as Liberty, Williams Pride, Mac Free, there's a Jana Free, there's a bunch of different ones out now. Those are varieties that don't get the black spot, the rust diseases, the powdery, powdery mildew diseases, all those diseases that proliferate in our climate uh, because of the humidity that we have in the summer. So that'll reduce a whole bunch of any kind of spraying you have to do. And as far as insects go, you can get traps. So for the apple maggot, which is the one that creates the little worm <laughs> that everyone sees, uh, there's a, a round plastic ball you can get that you can put a, a sticky substance called Tanglefoot on it. You hang a couple of these balls in your trees. Usually you hang them sometime in June because that's when the, the apple maggot fly is starting to fly around laying eggs. And it sees the balls, thinks it's an apple, it lands on it, gets stuck, and then it dies. So it's a nice uh, barrier type of uh, control for apple maggots without having to resort to sprays. Charlie Nardozzi is here on Where We Live. You can join us. Tweet us at Where We Live. Uh, also, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, Charlie, Kathy from Branford wants to know, is it easy to grow ginger in this state? Uh, yeah, well, you can grow it. <laughs> See, the thing, with, the thing with ginger is that it needs a long growing season to get to that uh, brown skin ginger we often find in the grocery stores. Um, I grow it up in Vermont. I grow it in our, we have a little um, freestanding greenhouse. It's not heated or anything. And it does well. It, it'll grow really well um, up until the fall. It won't overwinter because as soon as it gets cold, it'll just die back. But what we end up doing is we harvest it as, as late as possible. And so when we harvest it, you're, you're getting what we call baby ginger. And so it's got this kind of whitish pink skin to it, has just the same flavor as ginger. It's delicious. And then we just freeze it and we use it all through the season. So you can do that here. Even if you don't have a greenhouse, you can grow it in a cold frame um, or grow it in a real warm microclimate spot that you have. It likes a sandy soil. Keep it nice and moist. And even if you don't get a lot of ginger root, you can eat the tops. You can eat the greens and it has that gingery flavor. You host the Connecticut Garden Journal, I believe. Uh, uh, you recently talked about growing celery. Is that easy? To yes. Do? Yeah, that's kind of my new revelation, even though celery is like, oh, celery, you know, I find it in the grocery stores. It's everywhere. But I started growing it. It, it has, has this reputation of being hard to grow because it likes kind of cooler weather and, and kind of a lot of moisture. But then I started thinking, well, we live in New England. <laughs> Isn't that what we have a lot of times in the summer? So if you have a spot in, in your garden that you want to try this with, you can uh, buy celery transplants. Plants. You could start them from seed, but it's a little late to be starting them uh, at this point. I grow a variety called Tango, which is more of a shorter season variety, so it'll mature a little bit faster. And I put out like a dozen plants last year, and they all took and they all grew into these huge heads, and we couldn't eat enough celery. And now, if you're juicing celery for health reasons, it's uh, really nice to have them there. But what the nice thing about the celery that I found is that even if the outside uh, branches or stalks of them uh, get really kind of tough, the inside is still tender. And uh, you won't get a celery that looks like the grocery store celery because that's been blanched. So that's why it's kind of a light green. It's more of a darker green, a little stronger flavor to it. Uh, but it's delicious. And we had it all summer long into the fall. Mm. 
I understand, Charlie, you just came back from a tour uh, in Cuba. What did mm-hmm. you learn there, especially with urban gardens? Oh, yes. So Cuba is a fascinating country, yeah, especially with the whole gardening and farming thing, because as you might know, the, the, a little bit about their history, back in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, they pulled out all their support for countries like Cuba. So they were their main trading partner to get food. And so there was what they call the special period, is what the Cubans call it. Um, literally, the Cuban diet uh, was changed so much that they weren't getting enough calories. And the average Cuban lost like 10 pounds during this couple-year period, which is pretty amazing. But what the, the bright side of all that, though, is that they started this whole urban agricultural movement. They call it the Organoponicos. And this is an organic movement because they didn't have any of the inputs. They didn't have the fertilizers, pesticides, any of that. They couldn't afford it. Uh, so they, they used all these organic techniques, and they created these urban farms, like big community farms, CSA kind of farms, all around Havana and other uh, cities around the country. And it's fascinating to go there to see them. They're still going strong. They produce 70% of their food off of these farms. Um, they're small. They're member-owned and member. Uh, they're like a membership co-op type of thing. Um, but they also are open for the public to have like a farm stand. And they grow not only just vegetables, even though the Cubans don't really like vegetables. That's what they, all the farmers kept telling us. I grow all these vegetables. They don't like eating them. But they love the mint before the mojitos. Yes. <laughs> they love those. But not only do they grow the vegetables, they grow medicinal herbs, too. Uh, because there's a lot of the medicines are not that avail- available in Cuba. And they have an herbalist on staff. And so Ramon was there, and he was telling us about all the different plants and how they use them. And they raise their own beneficial insects that they use to take care of a lot of the pests, because, again, they don't have the sprays. So it's a fascinating country for lots of reasons, but definitely for the agriculture mm. and gardening. Now, back here in Connecticut, you're hosting some uh, tour of the historic gardens in the summer. Uh, what website can our listeners go to to learn more about these tours that you do, Charlie? Yeah, so if you go to my website, which is gardeningwithcharlie.com, gardeningwithcharlie, spelled with with an IE at the end, uh, .com, and then just look for the tours. I do international tours, uh, like Cuba, for example, and I do regional tours, like the ones we're doing to the Connecticut Historical Gardens. And these are beautiful gardens, of course, all around the state. And if you want to find out more about them, uh, even if you don't go on my tour, you can visit them yourself. Uh, You go to Connecticut Historic Gardens, and they have a website that lists all 15 gardens, and they have open days on June 23rd this year, where you can go to the gardens, see the beautiful flowers, learn about the history of them. Some of them are fascinating. There's very famous uh, English designers that designed some of these gardens, like Gertrude Jekyll, for example. And so these are not only historic buildings and museums, but they're beautiful historic gardens at the same time. A couple of times we've talked to the author who wrote Lilac Girl, just recently Lost Roses, and the Bellamy Faraday House in Bethlehem, Connecticut is another uh, beautiful garden on that side of the state. Yes, exactly. We're going to the Glebe House, which is in Woodbury. That's one of the stops. And of course, we're going to White Flower Farm because you have to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Real quick, uh, we had a listener who wanted to just get a, a couple tips of shrubs to plant around her house that are deer-proof. Just a couple of minutes, Charlie. A deer-proof shrubs. Okay, so <laughs> you you probably yeah. Good luck. Exactly. Uh, you probably you want to stay away from things like yews and the rhododendrons. They really like to munch on all of those very much. So stuff that g- generally deer stay away from things that have like a prickly or scented kind of foliage to them or prickly foliage. Um, I I would try a Father Gila is a nice one that you might want to try uh, around the plants. Some of the native dogwoods, some of the shrub dogwoods would probably work okay. Um, some of the native plants that we 
have, like the forsythias and things of that nature, they don't seem to bother those so much. They're really interested in, in the exotic things. We grow canamilies, which is a flowering quince, which has some little spikes on it, little thorns on it. Um, that could be another, another nice one, too. There are lists of uh, plants in Connecticut that are deer, I wouldn't say resistant, deer tolerant. And those are things that you can look up. Uh, I know the University of Connecticut may have some of those resources for you. And also, uh, we know that there are conservation districts around the state of Connecticut. Yes. That's where you can be buying your native plants, it's Charlie. Exactly. Um, a lot of them, uh, there's a few, I think, that still have the plant sales going on the next couple weekends. But definitely check them out, the conservation districts, because that's a good place to get native plants inexpensively. Well, always a pleasure to talk to Charlie Nardozzi again, a horticulturist, author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal here yeah. on WMPR. You can hear it Thursdays at 3.04 p.m. Charlie, thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalbeth Anshul. Now, regular listeners of Where We Live know we cover a wide range of topics. We bring you interviews with interesting people. Many of them are Connecticut residents. If you appreciate this locally produced show that focuses on our state, you can support Where We Live and WMPR during our spring membership campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you the number to call. 